And welcome to episode 68 of the Coot Street Podcast. Today we're joined by Ian Mond from The Writer and the Critic, and we're going to be talking about the processes that lead to the evolution of a best-of-the-year list, or at least finding stuff that gets recommended. So, over in Chicago, good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. And I think for the first time since probably the famous Boxing Day Mega Podcast, we get to have three different times of day. So, Ian, it's good afternoon to you. It is good afternoon to me, and uh, good evening to you, Gary, and good morning to you, Jonathan. Good afternoon. Welcome. Th- Welcome back. Th- thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, we had to. I mean, I was listening to the writer and the critic the other week, which is when you were quite reasonably complaining that we were failing in our apparent duty to recommend enough books from 2011 to give you an idea of what you should be reading. Look, I I use the internet, obviously, but I basically rely on you to. uh, Because, see, the problem with the internet is that people don't have the sort of forward uh, uh, look. They don't have the books coming out uh, into the future. So whereas you guys do, so you're privy to things that aren't actually out yet, not that you necessarily mention them, but, you know, you could tell, you could sort of hint at things that are to come and what we should look forward to, and, yeah, I do rely on you. Mm-hmm. I do. That's I can't fun. help it. Flattering but foolish. Well, maybe, <laughs> but still, you know, especially well, Gary. Good. I rely, I absolutely rely 100% on Gary <laughs> all day, every day. When I wake up in the morning and go to bed, it's Gary on my mind. There's um, a song in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, probably is. I think I, I think it was excised from every musical in the last 20 years. But uh, we did. No, that's true. We, we may have been a bit premature in talking about uh, the year 2011, because it's true. Jonathan and I have pretty much seen books up through December. Two of the books I reviewed, two, two of the books I just wrote reviews of are December books. And uh, and that's for a column that comes out in November. And now I'm looking at Jan- when we were talking about this, I was getting confused because I was looking at some exciting books that are coming out in January of 2012, yeah. uh, like Blue yeah. Remembered Earth, for example. Um, yeah. Well, the thing for me was that it was you started really strong in January with among others, which I bought based on your recommendation. I don't think yes. I loved it as as much as you two did, but I, but I liked it. And then there's a gap of nine months, and you speak about Planes Runner with the same sort of love, and. Uh, I'm being a bit rude. Obviously, you spoke about books in between, but a lot of them have been collections from memory, like the Caitlin sure. Keenan one and Lucy Sussex right. and a few others. So I, I did think, you know, I just couldn't, I wasn't getting the love about what's what's out there at the moment. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some love. And I mean, we didn't spend enough time about it because <clears throat> the other thing that happens when you're re- reading books in advance is you're not quite sure when they're actually out. But um, the new Christopher Priest novel is terrific. I loved it. Yeah. This is The Islanders. Yes, the island, the island. which I, I've downloaded a copy on my Kindle uh, slash iPad, and I, I will read it at some point. But uh, yeah, you did mention that. But but, is, but I think you said Jonathan last week. That's something that probably won't get much buzz. It's a little bit too hard for people. Well, I, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, Chris Priest is a terrific writer. He's probably one of the best write, uh, science fiction writers in the UK, and has written a couple of my favourite books. And I know that he's a favourite among some of our podcast listeners. But he, for some reason, he's never been the kind of writer who does get that runaway buzz, no matter what kind of book it is. And reading Gary's description of the Islanders in his review as a kind of episodic novel made up of stories that sort of have a cumulative impact over time, that doesn't tend to be the kind of book, when I think about it, you know, the patterns of how buzz evolves and the kind of books the field likes, that doesn't seem to be the kind of book that the field responds to that way, you know? The field likes certain things right now. Yeah, it in likes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for 
20 years now, Christopher Priest has been marketed in the UK as a mainstream novelist. Yeah. And I think to some extent he's, his profile has, has, may have risen in the field, certainly, certainly since the film of The Prestige. Uh, and maybe he's, he's, I don't know, maybe he's not perceived or not as widely marketed or not as widely talked about in the, in the genre because he's gotten a fair amount of mainstream attention. Well, well, certainly since the movie was made over the prestige, or not? I mean, that could be. <laughs> no, I think there's some truth to it. But I think since the movie was made of the prestige, that really did shift his reputation uh, more to a mainstream reputation. But from what I pick up, this really is a genre novel that he's written. So you know, you'd think that that's where people would respond to it. Um, the other thing I'd say is, I mean, Ian, is that I think one of the reasons that you've not heard yep. as much love for books, partly I think, is the what. Well, first of all, for the evolution of this podcast, because I don't know how it is from Gary's perspective, but we've up to a certain point, we've kind of stayed clear of trying to preempt you know, reviews that are going to go in the magazine, that kind of thing. And we've evo- we're moving away from that and perhaps being a bit more relaxed, talking about what we're reading currently. So probably there'll be more recommendations. Okay. Um, is, is, my, is good. My, is my mm. guess. Uh, you know, and I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, it's just sort of a, a change in perspective. And also... As you know all too well, because of course, Gary, Ian and I are both part of Last Short Story on Earth. You know, you mm. spend an awful lot of time reading short stories, and yes, we'll buzz an anthology or a collection every now and again, but that's why I'm reading you know, far fewer novels, and that's why, you know, I mean, I'm interested to hear other people's recommendations for 2011 novels, simply because I don't have the time to sit and read them as much as I'd like. And the reason that, you know, I think we buzzed among others by Joe Walton is because, first of all, we both liked it a great deal, but also it yeah. fell in a, in a lull in the in, in time of the year when we could actually, I actually had time to sit and read a novel, and I read it and I went, wow, this is great. And the previous book, Life Load, had been great in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this. Whereas, you know, some of the other books which are being talked up now and are going to end up leading up to the, you know, the decision whether this was a good year or not, are only really maybe just getting talked about? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you know, and, and among others, it's 300 pages long. Yes. So you can knock it off quite quickly, whereas, I don't know, yeah. the, the, the George R. Martin or the Patrick Rothfuss, which I noted someone recommended, yeah. uh, they're, they're huge books. I mean, they they're are. massive. Even, even something like Leviathan Wakes or one of the other, the other Daniel Abraham book, I mean, I think you read that one, Jonathan. I mean, that's still over, well over 400 pages, isn't it? They are. I mean, I, I read Leviathan's Wake by James Corey, which is Daniel Abraham with Ty Frank. Uh, and I liked it very much. And I was really looking for a traditional center of the genre book to read. I do think it's a little bit flabby, but it, it is. You're right. It's a four or 500 page book. And Abraham's other novel of the year, which was, you know, which was uh, The Dragon's Path, which is the first book in his new epic fantasy series, is another four mm-hmm. or 500 page book. And if you look around at the books that people are recommending around the field right now, and you're right to say Dance with Dragons and Wise Man's Fear, which is the Patrick Rothfuss, but also mm-hmm. something like the new Neil Stevenson, which I've been rubbishing for months and months now, simply <laughs> ju- just based on its length, on the, on the you know, sort of three months okay. of my- I, I, was reading it. I, want to, I want to interrupt that because this is one of the things I was thinking about. I was seeing a lot of complaints about Blackout All Clear as being a you know, 1,500 page novel and, and, and I think Ream D or whatever you pronounce it. Is, is, I think this one actually comes in at less than 1,000 pages if I'm not mistaken. At least the ARC does. Uh, the hard book does. It doesn't. Okay, the book's over 1,000 pages. Well, if, if you looked at the Count of Monte Cristo lately... Now that's fascinating. You should mention the Count of Monte Cristo. That is so fascinating. I'll tell you why. I read. I never read the kids' version of it, which is about eleven pages long. <laughs> and then, and then I was at a bookstore about twelve months ago, and there was a 
translation of it on the shelf, and it's like it's like nine hundred thousand pages long. It's I looked it up. It's thirteen hundred pages in the current <laughs> Penguin Classics edition. Um, Les Miserables fifteen hundred pages. I mean, long suspense adventure novels were a standard part of novel writing uh, up until probably uh, 80 or 90 years ago. Yeah, but they had nothing um, to do for themselves, but, Gary. Yeah. They had no life. And they only published one book a year anyway. <laughs> well, look, at Dickens published uh, as much as any prolific writer today. Now, admittedly, he was living in an age when people had, I don't know, long carriage dresses. I was, an interesting footnote, I, I had it explained to me by the, um, uh, the president of, of Waterstones, the British... Uh, bookseller years ago, that one of the things that made the three-decker novel work was the invention of the uh, steel suspension system that permitted stagecoaches to replace carriages. Huh? And, okay. Okay. Carriages, it turns out that if you're traveling from London to Manchester on those ruddy, bumpy roads in a carriage, <clears throat> you're bouncing too much to read. As soon as you build a stagecoach, which has a suspension system, the ride is much smoother, and suddenly you can read books on it. And the circulating library system, which tended to have uh, stops along the way, every what we would later in uh, a later generation consider uh, newsstands along railways, uh, would have the second volume of the novel you started. You'd turn in the first volume to the lending library, pick up the second volume, turn in the second volume at the next stop and pick up the third volume. Uh, and there was a huge market for writing novels uh, at that length. Um, I don't think, and I don't think that The Count of Monte Cristo is a boring novel. My point is that some writers just write long. And I've talked to Neil Stevenson about it, uh, and he says, I just write long. You see, my, my, my response to that, Gary, writing long is fine, but I live short. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only so many books I can fit into a year. And, I mean, I've I was I've been homesick all week, as you might be able to tell from my voice. I and I actually had yet well not all week I actually was at work most of the week I was home yesterday and I put two books down beside this, my bed to read one was Reamed by Neil Stevenson and the other let's not call it Reamed I mean that sounds like <laughs> jeez come on and you start calling it Reamed you're going to get an explicit tag on this podcast <laughs> why it's a perfectly legitimate word and also uh, Robert McCammon's new book The Five mm-hmm. which is also long is it it's like 500 pages Okay. A Boy's Life, which was a wonderful novel. Of his Loved it. Was Great book. 1,200 pages, something no, like that. No, it was not. Get, get it. was about 400 pages. It, You're making that up. You're a Boy's that Life up. is huge. It is not. Oh, it's never mind. Not, I'm thinking it's, it's not that long, Gary. It's, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that version of the, that sort of version he wrote of The Stand. Yes, don't make me go into the, into my library. And Stephen up. King. Yes, I know. That's Stephen King, not Robert McCammon. But my whole point here, since we're... No, no, no. Is, Robert McCammon did a novel that looked a lot like The Stand. My whole point here is that I put these two books beside my bed. It was a six six or eight inch stack of paper, and I turned around and picked up my iPad and played a game instead because it was too much to do to, to look at. Well, I think it's for me. It's I'm getting older, and of course I've now got a, a child. Yes. I just don't have time. Ten years ago, I could read Stephen yeah. King's Stand. In fact, I did, and uh, I could read it and any other yep. novel that was a thousand, twelve hundred pages. Long, no problems. But now, 37, got a child, got plenty of work on at work. I just don't have the time. Even yeah. though I take public transport to work, I'd actually rather read the new 52 DC comics on my iPad than read. And, the only, and I'm reading for writer and the critic, and that's the minimum I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. And last short story when I've got the time. Yeah. Usually hmm. when I'm on the toilet. <laughs> See, well, I, 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 yeah, sorry, Gary. I was going to say, the problem I have, of course, is I have to read so many new books a month, and that, that discourages reading really long books. But 
imagining a world in which I just had free choice over what I wanted to read and had no stack behind me that I had to get <laughs> get to, I would still I would still choose uh, a 950-page Neil Stevenson non-science fiction novel over any two novels by Christopher Paolini. Yeah, Stephen King's got a book out this year that's slightly, you know, uh, yeah. uh, I can't remember what it's called, 221163, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I, that'll probably be long, and I'll read that because it's Stephen King. Same same thing. Yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I will say that there's at least one book which I feel bad about not reading this year, and I didn't read it because of length, and that's um, Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. I feel bad about it because... It's in an area that I'm in, you know, that I've had interest in the past. This whole new swords and sorcery, swords and sorcery noir kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be the best book he's ever done. It's getting great reviews, but it's about three and a half inches thick. <laughs> you know, um, and the only, I, I, you know, I, I, I read a bunch of books lately uh, that I've enjoyed. And I'd happily buzz. I read Snuff by Terry Pratchett, but I don't feel there's any point in bu- buzzing a Terry Pratchett book because there's 12 million people already reading those. You know, um, mm. did, did I love it? Yes. Do I think it's a very good Terry Pratchett book with some possible signs of the Alzheimer's showing through? Yes. Um, but, you know, you, that doesn't need us buzzing it particularly. Um, the books that need us buzzing it are the ones that are going to get overlooked by the rest of the field. Because, you know, whether I like Reamed or you like Reamed. You're going to do that, aren't you? Well, that's <laughs> why he put it down. I'm sorry. You know, if you you tell me how else you pronounce it's it. It's like a William Burroughs novel. <laughs> hey, Burroughs wrote short, so uh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I keep calling it reamed. I'm loving it. <laughs> I keep calling I, I, my, my pre- preferred pronunciation is read me because that's what the phrase is supposed to be. It's simply a typo. Yeah, but that's which is used as a typo. It's really called reamed. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to win this. You just know it. You feel it already, can't you? He's got me. I'm calling it Reamed from now on. That's two against three. So tell me, Ian, you've been podcasting yeah. for a year. Yes. How does that affect your reading? Well, um, I'm actually now – the original idea of the podcast is that we would recommend things that we had read to each other. I'm now starting to recommend things I haven't read but I want to read. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's affected it because um, I just don't have – I have to use the artificiality of the podcast sure. to find time to read stuff. So, for example, next year I'm definitely going to recommend The Quantum Thief because I want to read that. Yep. But at the same time, I'll still recommend things like uh, uh, a, Thomas, a Thomas Dish book because um, – which I'm going to do next year because I love Thomas Tish, who you don't talk enough about on this podcast. Every time you speak about New Wave, I yell and scream and say, you miss <laughs> Thomas Dish. I've actually read very little Thomas Dish, I have to admit. I mean, well, read... On Wings of Song is one of the great novels. I don't Wings the of Song is one of the great fantasies I've ever read. That's one of the things that should yeah, – I, I agree completely, and it should have a reputation uh, alongside Crowley's Little Big. Uh, and for some reason, and some of it had to do with Tom's own behavior within the field and his own personal problems and that sort of thing. Uh, but for some reason, the uh, the profile of that novel is, is not what it should have been. And, and there are a lot of readers out there. And probably, again, this is a good example of how a movie cannot help somebody's career. Probably there are a lot of people who only think The Brave Little Toaster. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a shame. Because, I mean, I, I think it was a year and a bit ago I spent reading basically Dish's entire canon, including 
all the Southern Gothic stuff and, uh, and, and the stuff that he wrote under a pseudonym and the book he wrote with uh, his uh, partner, Charlie, uh, I think yeah. Good Neighbours, I think it was called, which is a wonderful book, beautiful novel. Just such a talented writer. And uh, so and I, know I heard he was a bit of a, I don't know, I was going to say ass, but that's probably wrong. But he was, he was uh, obstreperous. Is that a nicer word? Yeah. Difficult. Obstreperous is a good word, and he's been that way. I mean, the last time I saw him, which was at, at ReaderCon, he was, uh, it was it was with Charles Brown, and they were reminiscing. Both of them had phenomenal memories, of course. They were reminiscing about fandom in the '60s and '50s and that sort of thing, and and he was gleeful. He when when he found somebody who he found a wavelength was he was he was almost childlike in his delight at being able to talk about these things. But it had a lot of bad luck in his career. It had a lot of bad marketing. He had um, he he'd developed a reputation as a curmudgeon, and I'd seen the curmudgeon part of him on, uh, well, not only on panels and uh, but 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 look at that book he wrote about science fiction, which is a very curmudgeonly book. Yeah, and significantly wrong in many aspects. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know when Badris died, he cheered, didn't he? Did he? God. Yeah, he did. He got. I'm pretty sure. Because <laughs> a couple, of, he was still. He was on Live Journal at that point, and he, and he made a big deal about yeah. the fact the guy was dead. And you know, fantastic. He was. He was elated by this because he'd be yeah. because he'd been given a bad review uh, when he did. Uh, I think it was his first book. Uh, one of his first. Because side something else. Yeah, where Budras really kicked it, and uh, he he never forgiven him. So why is it? Do you think that Thomas Dish? Is kind of to some degree forgotten or falling into, you know, that the space where he could be forgotten. When, uh, say, a con- kind of contemporary though quite different, uh, like John Brunner, isn't. I mean, Brunner's name seems to be coming up again more and more often. That's true. Wh- whereas Dishes isn't, uh, and that that that's kind of it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I have heard in the background that apparently the you know Dishes estate is not easy to deal with, and I don't know if that's true, but if that's a factor, then that will help keep work out of print and make it you know less accessible, all that kind of thing. But um, you would have thought on, on the surface of it, because I mean, um, Brunner and what two or three major novels that came out in the sixties. Um, uh, Dish was very much the same because he's what three, three, four. He had Camp Concentration. He had uh, On Wings of Song, which has been much later, about fifteen mm-hmm. years later, but still. And then you have uh, uh, Brunner, who has you know sort of Sheep Look Up, Stand on Zanzibar, The Shockwave Rider. You know, you would, th- and then what's more. Dish had the benefit, if you like, of going into what into what was a more commercially successful field at the time, because I mean he moved into horror did, uh, yeah. at a time when it was really being quite commercially successful, and yet somehow it never seemed to equate to him being more successful or better known. Well, <clears throat> yeah, the businessman and the, the other horror novels he wrote, um, I read a couple of them; they were very good. Um, but you're right that. That's a field where you either devote your career to it and build up a long... So you, you can't dip into it and write a couple of classics. I think one of the things that may have damaged Dish compared to Brunner was On Wings of Song because it really is like no other novel. I mean, it's, uh, it, it clearly was a kind of fantasy. It was clearly autobiographical in aspects. And, and yet it wasn't a science fiction novel in any traditional sense of the word. Brunner, I think, is, is, is being resurrected now because... He was a career science fiction writer who started out as a pulp writer. He started out writing ace doubles. Um, I remember reading a letter from him. He'd written to uh, somebody once where he'd figured out, all I have to do is write eight novels a year and I can make a living as a writer. (laughs) I guess in the 1950s you could do that. And he was very upset, apparently, 
when Stand on Zanzibar took him two years to write. But it, but in other words, there's a, there's a kind of uh, historical arc in Brunner's career that tells us a lot about science fiction. Dish really more or less abandoned science fiction <clears throat> in any significant way uh, by, what, the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, well, fair. No, that's a fair point. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking about my reading. Yeah, that he he does stop with the SF, and you're right. On Wings of Song isn't isn't really a science fiction novel, though. I'm pretty sure it's one that the science fiction crowd has taken on as their own because you don't hear many fantasy people. I, I was no. what was it was it nominated for anything at the time? I can't remember because I know oh, he didn't no. win, he didn't win many awards in his lifetime. Um, no, and uh, I, from I've got a memory that on Wings of Song he pulled or something from. Hugo's, or maybe it wasn't on Wings of Song. I probably shouldn't speak about it because I don't actually know what I'm talking about. But no, no, that makes you a perfect candidate for this podcast. We often talk about things with <laughs> no <laughs> idea about. You really shouldn't back away from any kind of, you know. I mean, basically, the rule of thumb here is look them in the eye, say it firmly and loudly. They'll believe you nine times out of ten. It's worked for us really well. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think he took on New Wave quite serious. I think on Wings of Song could fit into the New Wave canon yeah. in its own special and I think, yeah, but 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 again, uh, the, if you look at a lot of the new wave writers at that time, including the most you know uh, significant, Ballard. Ballard was never really that embraced by the science fiction community as a community. Mm. Oh, okay. I don't know how many award nominations you get after the uh, late '60s. I mean, you know, there, there was the initials, uh, the early '60s, really, uh, the, the initial splash of things like Terminal Beach and the short fiction. And the the notoriety of the Crash trilogy, of course, but to some extent he was uh, as much of an exile as anyone else. And the new wave, in some ways, seems to be becoming more marginalized in the history of science fiction. I mean, you certainly have, uh, a, you know, the almost immeasurable influence of Moorcock. But uh, one of the odd things about Brunner again is that uh, he was so much associated with American pulp magazines and Ace Books and that sort of thing. He was really never accepted by the New Wave at all and didn't get along with them very well, from what I can gather. Yeah, okay. So he well, wasn't really a New Wave writer. Uh, well, on Dish, I'm going to uh, do, for Writer and the Critic, next uh, for the next 12 that we're going to do, uh, that'll definitely be, On Wings of Song will definitely be one of those. Kirsten doesn't know that yet, but I <laughs> this podcast, so now she does know. But she shouldn't be frightened because it's a wonderful book. And I won't give her my first edition copy of it because she'll smear it with her oils on her fingers. I'll give her my crappy <laughs> one that I got off Advanced Book Exchange. So, uh, yeah, so she, but we're definitely going to do because I really would like to see Dish get more um, exposure. Not to say that writing well, the critics well, actually, can I, do that. but uh, Well, I was going to say, you actually touch on something interesting here tangentially that might be worth exploring for a moment. And that is one of the undercurrents to so this podcast recording now, obviously, is the whole idea of buzz and how it's generated, what's going to get mm. it. Now, in the last five years a couple of writers have been the beneficiaries of buzz and i mean the one the most obvious one above anybody else i can think of is joanna russ yes now, joanna russ's profile today is much much greater than it was just even three years ago never mind five years ago so obviously there's a process for generating buzz that can work you know well, yeah dying is one <laughs> <laughs> well you know, no no i mean yes but no because Russ, Russ actually, her name came back to prominence, frankly, long before she died. Is your is is basically your discussing dish on the writer and the critic part of the beginning of a buzz process that may result in him becoming better known again? I'm arrogant enough to think that yes, it is. 
(laughs) (laughs) The right of the critic will start that. (laughs) Okay, Ian, what I think you can accomplish, and I think you might very well accomplish this, and I will support you uh, on the entire direction, is create some buzz for On Wings of Song, Uh, the the complex career of Dish. And apart from the fact that he had a completely separate, he was... In some ways, he was the Ian Banks of American science fiction because Tom Dish, the poet who published in literary poetry journals and poetry magazine and that sort of thing, had a completely separate reputation in that world as a fairly significant modern poet who was related to the language poets. Um, and, and that reputation may still be there to the extent that any poet's reputation is still there. Um, so, but, but the point is, he, he wrote this very uh, interesting, complex uh, linguistic poetry. He wrote fantasy, he wrote sort of apocalyptic things, he wrote a new wave science fiction, um, he wrote, uh, you know, earlier, uh, almost, more, the most, maybe the most traditional science fiction is Camp Concentration, would you say that's fair? Uh, he wrote um, oh, something before that, which is even more traditional in his early days, not the puppies from Terra, but something, I'm, I'm actually mm. now on my iPad looking up because I've, because okay. I do actually want to speak from some knowledge here, Uh <laughs> Uh, Echo Round His Bones, that's it. Echo okay. Round His Bones, okay. yeah. which is a I very early novel, uh, is very traditional. Yeah. Okay. So he moved more and more out of it. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is when you talk, start talking about writers, and this is one of the things I, I would like to do, is not just create buzz about new writers, but buzz about books that seem to be disappearing. Mm. Uh, and the more attention paid to Tom Thomas Dish, or Tom Dish, or both of them, uh, the better. <laughs> I was talking with a friend of mine the other day about Michael Bishop. Yep. Somebody else who's still around, still active, a brilliant writer. Yes. Um, one of his most ambitious novels, and the one I think he was most disappointed in the performance of, was called Brittle Innings. Which I, love, I love Brittle Innings. That is one of the great books I've ever I've read. That, that, that made agree. me cry. I, I love, love that, that book. Yeah. It's so, absolutely astonishing, and no one can see what's going to happen. I mean, I guarantee anybody. Okay, this is this is part of creating buzz. I guarantee anybody who picks up Brittle Innings, uh, especially if you can get the hardcover and some used. You will never figure out what's going to happen halfway through that novel. <laughs> no, no. But you will bawl your eyes out, and not because it's overtly sentimental, but because of the way he, he just – it's masterful in the way he gets you to that point where you just – te- I mean, I, my, my pages are soaked with tears. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I loved that book. It came out time, at the same time as another book that I greatly loved that never got talked about very much, which was Lewis Shiner's Glimpses. Yes, which I have, That's which right. I have a copy of here somewhere, which and I haven't which, read. Though. Which is fantastic. I think it's a great book. I mean, admittedly, it's a, almost a mainstream novel, and it is v- steeped in music nostalgia and all that kind of stuff. So, if that kind of thing isn't your, you know, your deal, then I guess it's not going to make you sort of terribly happy. I think it actually won the World Fantasy Award for best novel, and it does sort of show you that you can win the major awards in the field, and it doesn't necessarily even lead to automatically the book being remembered very well i mean yeah, you know, no. we were talking about on wings of song right? how was it received at the time I, I can tell you just like you and i fired up my ipad and i'm going to cheat it was it was nominated for the hugo it was nominated for the nebula it was on the the locust finalist list it won the campbell memorial uh and there was also up for the you know, the, the world famous balrog award which is a favorite of mine uh <laughs> so, so in 1979 1980 it was a big deal and this is what 10 years after the end of the new wave and i'm going to disagree with you gary a little bit i think the new wave is a long way from being forgotten i think you know the, 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 it's the prime area of rediscovery right now uh, and actually looks like a more robust phenomenon than cyberpunk ever had 
Oh, give me an example of how it's being rediscovered. We're talking about Thomas Dish. Look at look at uh, John Brunner. Look at um, uh, even for, in terms of timing. Look at Joanna Russ as well. Certainly, this work from the '60s in and around the New Wave is being rediscovered. They're even talking about uh, starting up New Worlds magazine again. Believe it or not, again, again, again. I know. I've seen that. So I, I think it, it's actually looking historically pretty robust. Can I just go back to Michael Bishop? Yes. What happened? What's happened to Michael Bishop? I mean, is he, he did he didn't die or anything? Did he? He did not die. No. In fact, uh, any minute now, Subterranean Press are going to publish a best of his short stories, a book called The Door Gunner and other perilous flights of fantasy. Oh, which, oh okay. Thank you. I'll be getting that. Yeah. Which which I will now criticize my good friend Bill at Subterranean and say that is a <laughs> shitty fucking title for a book. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's supposed to be the best of Michael Bishop, but uh, he's, he has—he's written some brilliant short stories. Oh, he has. I mean, and he has not—he has not kept this quiet. But he was enormous. Uh, if you remember the uh, Virginia Tech yes. mass shootings, his his son was a professor there. Professor oh, that's Trump, right. Yes, I think, and was yes. the first fact member to be killed, um, and that was devastating to Michael. He'd written a story which alludes to it, which is absolutely heartbreaking, and I can't remember the title of it, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, what I loved about him is, I mean, his stuff is can be both playful and really harrowing. I mean, there's stories like The Samurai and the Willows, which I really loved. One of my mm-hmm. personal favorite stories of his was Apartheid, Superstrings, and Mordecai Thabana. Yes, which is a Which is a fantastic story. But then he'd also play enough, you know, around enough to do something like Bears Discover Smut, which is the takeoff <laughs> on the Terry Bisson story, Bears Discover Fire. Um, but it's been a long time since he's been able to get a novel out. He he published a couple right. of, um, in fact, interestingly, alluding to our pre-recording conversation, he did a couple of mystery collaborations with Paul DiFilippo. Oh, okay. Under a pseudonym, but I don't think they actually ever sort of sold brilliantly well. And then that was mm. it, sort of brittle innings, which was supposed to be, I think. Oh, wait, was it those crime muskrat rattle? Yes, those was... things, yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, that okay, which I, which I have copies of, because yeah. I, I had a binge where I bought everything by Michael Bishop. But yeah, uh, yeah okay, yep. Yeah. But um, with, I think Brittle Innings is one of those books that was supposed to be the big breakout book. And mm. although it was brilliant and we would encourage everybody to read it right away, it didn't break out, I don't think. And I think that really damaged sort of the follow-on because at the time there was a period where it looked like he was having a, and this is just from memory, his books were getting more and more profile. A book like Unicorn Mountain had done very, had you know, got a lot of good press at the time. Mm-hmm. Brittle Innings got really quite good press at the time, even though, you know, if you synopsize it, it sounds trivial, you know. You know yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, you, I'm you, curious. You, why, one thing that is curious to me, because um, it has to do with the, the, the way sports are treated in fiction. Now, both of you clearly appreciated that novel, which is still based on a certain culture of minor league American baseball. And how familiar can you be with that culture? I mean, well, I'm, I'm I, not familiar, but some of Stephen King's best writing is to do with baseball, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, baseball is one of those sports. It's not that hard to understand mm. for a non a non US mm. person, uh, unlike cricket, for example, which uh, you know you, you really need <laughs> to be in the culture. Um, and there's something about there's something about baseball and the feel of it and the nature of it that you could just be drawn into any story. I mean, I love watching baseball films. I just yeah. adore them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's not that hard from that. Yeah, you, you can, even though the, the culture is different, you can easily engage with it and empathise with it. For me, anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think also generally in a well-written book, 
the author contextualizes it very neatly and tidily, and you can see it in anything from, say, Shoeless Joe, uh, which was made into Field of Dreams, yeah. mm. uh, on through you know the, the the Michael Bishop novel, where you know the idea of a sports person going around playing minor league, a, min- a minor team circuit, whether it's baseball or anything else, isn't that hard to extrapolate from. And maybe there is a, a emotional layer that you don't quite get because. You never played Sandlot baseball yourself or whatever it might have been. Uh, yeah, but, but, but you there, can pick right. up. There's something novel. This has been pointed out many times by many sports writers. and sport. There, there, there is a sports literature subspecialty, I guess, among academics. That there are probably more baseball novels uh, in the United States than all other sports put together by mainstream writers, by people like Bernard Malamud, by, by Mar- you know, with The Natural, or, or, or Mark Harris with Bang the Drum Slowly. Uh, or uh, Robert Coover, the Universal Baseball Association. There's something novelistic about it. And, and one theory I heard, which is getting a little bit off off track, I suppose, was that... <laughs> Don't worry this about it, maybe, There's some similarity to cricket here. All other American sports have clocks, and all other American sports have defined geography. Baseball, according to its actual rules, can go on forever. The baseball game... Doesn't it ends, it ends after nine innings, but if they're tied, yeah. they could go twenty innings, and the so it's, so it's it's a potentially infinite game in time. It's a potentially infinite game in distance because the 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 length of a baseball field, if you hit a hit a four hundred foot home run, is based entirely on where the grandstands are built. There are no rules about how long the, <laughs> the yeah. So, so presumably the foul line in baseball extends to infinity. Uh, yeah. So and, so that's one one aspect. The other. The other aspect which is pointed is that baseball is a character-based sport in that there is a pitcher and a batter. Every incident in baseball is one character versus another, so it's inherently dramatic, whereas football is war. The best yeah, description actually was George Carlin's description of baseball versus football. and he, George Carlin was actually a very good sociological comedian. But he was absolutely right. Football is played in a stadium and baseball is played in a park. Yeah. Football, you yeah. wear a helmet. Baseball, you wear a cap. You know, football, uh, you uh, want to gain territory and enter, enter the enemy's end zone. And Gary. baseball, you want to go home. No, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Gary. They really, no, I love sport. I adore sport and I get picked on within SF circles. I mean, I've I've tried to organise sport panels at conventions and been shouted down because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously too many uh, too many fanboys and girls were picked on at school for not liking sport. But uh, what you've just done there, you brought a tear to my eye. I mean, it's it's uh, it's true um, yeah. about baseball anyway. And uh, and one I of mean, the, and it works very well in terms of the kinds of things that science fiction. Likes to do in Ian McDonald's Brazil, the 1950 loss of the World Cup, uh, is 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 possibly the crucial defining event in Brazilian history throughout that novel. And he makes and the description that, of that scene, that scene in the book where it's where you're told about it, is the best part mm-hmm. of the book for me. Yeah. It was actually Absolutely. the most captivating part. I actually like the book, but that's the most captivating bit when you hear that story about you know the, the World Cup they were meant to win, they were going to win. It was home ground advantage, mm-hmm. and they lost. And and the fact that it's true, it's actually what happened, just makes it mm-hmm. even more uh, you know emphasizes it. But uh, yeah, I love it. I love that sort of thing. As I said, for me, Stephen King, some of Stephen King's best writing. Uh, there's a, there's an article he wrote. It's a sort of a short story slash novella about his son playing baseball, which is mm. uh, just easily one of the best things he's ever written about. I think he followed his uh, son's league for a year, 
yeah. just just took mm-hmm. notes of what happened. Just, uh, it was Owen. Um, Owen, yeah. Yeah, Owen, and just, Owen, yeah. W- yeah, wonderful piece of writing. Loved it. It's, it's as good as Shawshank Redemption. Here's a crazy question. Has mm. any woman write, written a piece of science fiction or fantasy about sport? Gary? That is a question. Nancy Willard's Things Invisible to See is a very good baseball yes. ghost novel. Excellent. I was worried. I was getting worried. <laughs> no, no, I was getting worried about a podcast. I thought, we're, we're, we're only coming up with forgotten men to talk about. We're only talking about, you know, men's, you know, b- books by men. I can see Elisa Krasnerstein just shaking her head. She's throwing her knitting needles against the wall. She's just going mad. And I thought, yeah, well, ma- okay, maybe she is. But I mean, with, back to Michael Bishop, his last book was 94. I mean, he's genuinely forgotten. Mm. And the other two that came after that were with the ones with the Filippo. So, I mean, yeah. he hasn't written anything for 17 years, a novel, that is, under his name. And I, you know, I mean, he's he, like, dishes someone, and like Joanna Russ, they're people who shouldn't be forgotten, and they are going to be forgotten. Mm. Not Joanna, as you said, uh, Jonathan, because she's having a renaissance, as she deserves. Mm. Well, she is and she isn't. I mean, she, the, the collected stories of Joanna Russ are still not out. But they've Her been sold. criticism is out. But they've been sold, uh, Gary. Yes, I, uh, again... My understanding is that that's all sort of pretty much set. They're, they're going to appear, the collected stories, in the next okay. year or so. Well, about time, I would say. Uh-huh. But I think one of the things, if we can create, now that, talk about buzz. If we can create any kind of buzz that, that helps that sort of thing along, or helps a, a Michael Bishop, or for that matter, helps a Nancy Willard, who's been fairly invisible in the field because her reputation essentially is a non, that of a non-fantasy, non-science fiction writer. That who's Nancy Willard? I've never heard of Nancy Willard. That's, um, that's a, she'd written a lot of children's books. She'd written some mainstream books. Mm. She wrote a wonderful uh, children's book about Hieronymus Bosch, of all things. Uh, oh, okay. But her one, her, her, her one adult fantasy novel that I'm aware of was, was, was a baseball novel. Yes, it was. Called Things Invisible to Say. Um, I do wonder. Here's, here's something I wonder, only because of dealing with my grandkids. Girls' sports novels, I'm sure there are some out there in the YA uh you know, feel that I have no idea about at all. Um, I was thinking about this because among American girls, at least, soccer is probably the most prominent sport. Uh, everybody plays it. Uh, they do it very well. They, the, by the time they're teenagers, they're playing games that are as complicated and skilled as, as boys are playing, at least. And this occurred to me when I was reading, as a matter of fact, again, Plains Runner. One of the things that came up as a question in Plains Runner is that the, the, the protagonist's skill at soccer prefigures his genius at seeing patterns in quantum field equations. Mm. Um, he, and it, it, the, the, the soccer game, except it's not called soccer, of course, it's called football, like everybody else in the world does. And I, I, one of the things they thought about during that, reading that book was, well, American kids are going to read this and they're going to see the word football and they're not going to understand that this is not what we call football. But it occurred to me that if somebody wanted to write a really good YA girls book about sports, that would be a good sport because soccer slash football is also inherently dramatic. Uh, the goalie, there's even a Wim Winders, is it Wim Winders that made the film called The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick? Might have been. I was going to say, well, the, the, the other it, one, it, I, I, if we're going to come up with sports. My point is it's a one-on-one confrontation. The enormous pressure on a goalie it uh, is, is, is yeah. classically novelistic. But there is there, there's a sport that already falls in this category, Gary. They're already written about, and it in effect is hockey, because Quidditch is basically hockey or lacrosse. 
That yeah. killed that. Um, an interesting hybrid. There is a too. way. <laughs> killed that. La- lacrosse without, without without a cable, I guess. It's interesting that. Uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. Well, actually, that is interesting now that you mention that because. Uh, another sport which is invented by Jones Lanzuski is slam ball. Let's talk uh, about Jones Lanzuski. Controlled by your brain waves. Hmm? Let's talk about Jones Lanzuski. I didn't hear. I said let's. I want to edit this podcast. Uh, I'm sorry, well, let's talk about Jones Lanzuski and the High Frontier. <laughs> you are, are you going to tell us about it, Gary? Because Susan Loyal, who commented on it Ian, on, on our blog, can. Go and give it a go. Ian. Okay. John is, he is a writer. I'm, I... I'm still here. I'm, I'm still here. I'm listening. <laughs> okay. Go, Gary. Okay. First of all, first of all, I've not finished the highest frontier. Um, it's enormously inventive. And I'm thinking within the first 100 pages or so, which is what I've read so far, uh, there are parts of there are parts of the novel that make me want to say that Joan Slanzuski is the most inventive biological science fiction writer working now. She's got one thing after another uh, that are just, you can see the work of a professional speculative biologist. Uh, space cables are made out of anthrax bacteria because anthrax, and I actually ran into Joan in Reno and asked her, she said, yeah, anthrax bacteria has this peculiar uh, high tensile strength. And if you could sort of, Mutated, you could make a space cable which would repair itself. And there's one invention after another in it. My question at this point in the novel, there were two questions. Are some novels over-invented? In other words, do some novels have so many ideas in them that you're, you're, you're just in awe of one idea after another and one thing you think, this has worked out really well, and, and, and you're still waiting for the plot to sort of kick in? And that was my reaction so far. I'd say Dervish House is similar to that. There's a lot of invention in that, and the plot doesn't kick until about halfway through. Um, I think you're right, um, I, and I'm not sure what the difference is. I, I, I think that uh, there may be – I could get in real trouble for this. I probably <laughs> will. There may be a difference in the way writers approaching those inventions from a literary device point of view versing, versus writers – approaching those inventions from a scientist's point of view, that the scientist becomes fascinated with how the inventions work, and somebody who's a novelist, and, 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 and you know, this, is, this is a distinction I probably should not be making at all. Boy, am I getting in trouble. Uh, <laughs> Ian McDonald, like Greg Bear, are literary people who have learned a lot about science. And when they learn about science, they learn about it as a way of advancing their narrative increasing the level of inventiveness of their narrative and that sort of thing. Scientists who come to literature seem to be much more fascinated with the ideas and, oh boy, okay, I'm, 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 I'm not well, going to go I any think, I, think we know, I think we know what you're saying, <laughs> yeah. though. That, that scientists are more, uh, yeah, well, you've said it. And I, I don't know, I mean, how, how many science writers are there? I mean, Gregory Benford, would that be an example? Well, yeah. Gregory Benford is somebody who comes to mind, but Gregory Benford is somebody who's extraordinarily literate for a scientist. Uh, and oh boy, okay, let me let me back up. Let me back up. <laughs> extraordinarily familiar with specific literary traditions. In Benford's case, he has mastered and internalized 
the rhythms of, of Faulkner particularly. He's read Faulkner. If you look at his fiction, you can find fiction that is a direct address of uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, there's a lot of Faulkner. There's, uh, I think, a Salinger story of his. Um, in other words, he's somebody who's fascinated by literature in the same way that some literature-based writers are fascinated by science. Um, yeah, but the, but the okay, problem is with the theory, Gary. Another, Gary, let me throw it. Okay, sorry. Robert Forward. Okay. Oh! <laughs> now, are people still reading Robert Forward? I'm not. I've never read any Robert Forward. I can't get into it. I don't well, even know if it's still in Forward. print. Is it still in print? I doubt it. Dragon's Egg and the other ones, yeah. I Dragon's Egg. Okay, Dragon's Egg impressed me as the work of um, the work of somebody clearly influenced by Hal Clement, but who really knew a lot more science than Hal Clement did. Hal, Hal Clement was a, a secondary school science teacher who did all the research, but he did all the research the way somebody who's a teacher would do the research. He was not, a, as, as far as I know, a practicing scientist. Forward's novel is just, in, Dragon's Egg is full of invention. A lot of the invention uh, has been picked up by people like Stephen Baxter later on and so forth and so on. It's not bad, but it's, it's, it's like a toolbox for a novel more than a novel. It's full of terrific ideas. And there was a time in my life where I could get all the way through a novel based on nothing but terrific ideas. Mm. And I don't think that forward. I don't. I've not tried to reread Dragon's Egg in a long time, but I don't think it would work for me anymore. So you're saying that, that forward, unlike Bishop and Dish and Jonah Russ, isn't someone we should be uh, digging off, digging out of his grave to, uh, uh, you know, uh, no, promote his work. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, th there there are people who have a specific role in the history of science fiction. I have enormous respect for Hal Clement, for example. And when I was a kid, one of the first the first serial I ever read when I subscribed to what was then Astounding Science Fiction. That gives you a sense of how old I am right there. Uh, was a <laughs> old. Old. Go back. Go back and try to read almost any Hal Clement novel other than possibly Needle and possibly Ice World. Mm -hmm. And they're just brilliant collections of ideas with pulp characters moving them. I did try to read a Hal Clement because I thought, well, why not? And it just felt like mm. slabs of text with nothing much going on yeah. and all a bit yeah. dull. And I just thought, oh, I just can't be bothered. Yeah. I, I, well, it's interesting. I think it's easier to rediscover someone who is a novelist first and a scientist second than it is to rediscover the work of a scientist first and a novelist second. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why some of Asimov disappear, is disappearing and his reputation is to some degree declining. Uh, the fact that, you know... <clears throat> Robert Ford was the ideas guy for Larry Niven, you know. Uh, yeah. And so if you're using Larry Niven, who is not the world's greatest prose stylist, as the person to get your ideas out, it gives you an idea that you're not necessarily the greatest <laughs> literary writer, whilst you may be a very good scientist of great ideas. You know, it's interesting, the blurb on Dragon's Egg from Larry Niven was that it's, Dragon's Egg is superb, I couldn't have written it, it required too much real physics. And mm. I think, well... That kind of gives you an idea. This is like to the if, if we're the left right spectrum, it's out in the science fiction hard science fiction spectrum out beyond Larry Niven kind of a thing. Um, and so yeah, it probably is a, a nice little sort of minor footnote in the history of the field that doesn't need to necessarily be talked about even at this length. Um, yeah, yeah, where does Greg Egan fit in, in this theory? Because he's a scientist first, isn't he? I was gonna bring up Greg Egan. 
Now, Greg Eaton is somebody who, in in the sense of information theory, I presume is a trained scientist or at least a, a, a trained technologist. And he also, at the beginning of Clockwork Rocket, um, makes certain that we understand everything about this alternative physics by giving us the entire biography of a, of, of a woman scientist, which is on one hand, an extended info dump for the first half of the novel, which is going to slow down a lot of people. On the other hand, and I didn't realize this, I'll give our friend Karen Burnham credit for having pointed this out to me. <clears throat> the, the issues that this protagonist faces as a woman scientist are exactly the issues that women scientists and technologists do face. And, and, and Karen knows this from her own experience working for NASA. So my sense from, from Egan's, I mean, Egan is clearly infatuated with this. My sense is that Egan is somebody who really wants to write character. He wants to do the literary part of it, but he's really genuinely preoccupied by the uh, by the physics, by the alternate physics in this novel. Mm. Yeah, but you see, if you want to write a science handbook, just write a science handbook. That's that's I know that's a pretty crass thing to say, but I'm said it anyway. I mean, because structurally, if if a new if a, a new author came along and did that, did what Egan did, what you're saying he does at the start of uh, the Clockwork book, yeah, it, you, you you wouldn't read any further. You'd say, well, you haven't you haven't learned basic structural lessons as to how to write. Whereas we we give it we allow Greg Egan because he has some credibility behind him, and I always find that to be unfair. I know life is unfair, but I I know maybe I'm babbling. But then that's normal for this podcast. Oh, so no, I'm, no, I'm, well, okay. no, we, we ramble. We don't babble. It's entirely... Oh, sorry. I babble, you ramble. Well, that yeah, may be there. true. But I, mean, no, but, oh, I, okay. but I am being serious, though. I mean, would a new author get away with that? Probably not. Having a... Um, well, I'm not probably, sure if Egan's uh, getting and, away with it. <clears throat> well, he's oh, not okay. getting away with a sense of massive... I mean, now, my, my sense is of Greg Egan that the science handbook part of it, he thought he was writing the science handbook separately, and he thought he was putting that on the website for somebody who wanted to go through all the math and all the physics and so forth and so on. There's been a website for each one of his last, what, four or five novels that has all the stuff worked out. And my question is this. Um, the, if, if you want to introduce a new cosmology, which is essentially what he's doing there, having a character go through a period of education is not an unreasonable way to do that. And so my question is, when Neil Stevenson does something like that in Anathem, except what he's essentially doing is reinventing the entire history of Western philosophy, and you're doing this for four or five hundred pages before the alien spaceship really becomes an issue, and did that bother you as much? I didn't read Anathem. I didn't read it either because it's too big and long. Which four hundred? There you go. And also, like someone told me about the four hundred and five hundred page that they're stuck in. He's stuck in the clock, or there's a description about the clock for the first hundred pages. I said, I've got better things to do. And and the thing with Greg Egan in his defence compared to Neil Stevenson is if um, if Neil Stevenson spends four or five hundred pages doing what he does, Greg Egan at least only spends fifty or sixty because his books are only three hundred pages long. Well, yeah. However, um, it may be four times as dense as anything in Neil Stevenson's book. I mean, my my thing, unfortunately, is I mean, I, apart from the fact that it's I'm on record as saying I think that Greg Egan may be one of the best potential popular science writers we ever had, but never followed that up because you can see it embedded in his fiction. Um, I I worry that that with Egan that the world is moving on. He wrote a handful of short stories, particularly which are stand amongst the best in the history of the field. Uh, some very, very good novels. But, you know, when we talk about buzz, which is, this is the buzz podcast, you know, clockwork rocket, people barely seem to know it's published. Never mind get it, got any buzz. There was so, a, 
you know, it's not going to appear on think, the hit. You don't, you don't think it's not. Nominate. No, I, I, I'd put pocket money down that uh, it's not. I've already got one bet with a friend, uh, with a good friend of this podcast, and I won't go into the details here. But I got a bet with a good friend of my podcast, uh, this podcast, that a particular book will not be on the Hugo ballot. And I don't think Greg Egan would be offended if I were to say that I'd be willing to take up a sim- similar bet about uh, Clockwork Rocket, just based on the way that the world, the, the field, is not talking about this book right now. Um, unfortunately. Well, the field, yes. I mean, and one of the things, but you know, there are. Uh, we were talking about uh, potential Hugo nominees and some of the uh, books that we've missed, and 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 some of the books we might have missed last year. I looked at last year's. Every every writer uh, who gets to a certain point has a constituency. I think Greg Egan has that constituency. It may not be in the mainstream of science fiction readers anymore. I believe the Clockwork Rocket is in the process of breaking even and earning out at least. Um, and the thing that may be the tragic thing that may be uh, a factor in that is that he spends nearly half of the novel educating us about this alternate universe, which has all worked out. It's the first novel in a trilogy. In the second novel, and, and the second novel is clearly set up at the end of the first one. He doesn't need to re-educate us. Uh, presumably, we've, 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 we've got our grounding in, uh, in, in, in the speed of light and all the variations on physics that he does. And it looks to me like the second and third volume could be pretty uh, substantial. Uh, the second one, I imagine, would be pretty substantial space opera. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that's true, could, Gary. But, but, but if you've been uh, burnt by the first book because you couldn't get through the first 60 pages, you're not going to the second book. You're not even going to bother. That's exactly my point. Yeah. That's why I say it's a tragedy. This, this trilogy ah. could be Greg's major work. I have no idea. But I have a feeling that the first half of the first novel – has virtually killed that as a, uh, as, as a potential classic, unless the second and third novels really just blow people out of the water. Yeah. But how many, how many times have you actually picked up the second novel in a trilogy after you couldn't get through the first one? Never. Yeah, that's the problem. That, that is the problem. Can, can I just jump in just quickly, just to get back to what the original podcast was, yes. I think, meant to be about? Just if I had to pick at the moment five, based on the comments that were that uh, you sent us, Jonathan, from uh, – were they all on the Podbean? One long one was sent as a direct email to us, but the others were on the on my blog comments, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was the, the long one was Susan. Is that right? Susan Loyal, yes. Who's yeah, right? who, said, who said, hurrah for Ian Bond, so she's my friend immediately. But uh, – if mm-hmm. you had to pick, because what is there six novels or five novels for the Hugo? Does it, it can matter? be it can be five or six. Okay, well, if I had to mm-hmm. pick five, based on what was said, um, the Rothfuss and the Martin would be on there because they've got huge followings. I don't yes. know if those people necessarily vote for Hugo's, but you'd think a percentage would. Yes. Uh, I think, among others, will definitely be on there. I think Embassy Town, even though, as you say, Jonathan, the buzz is sort of worn off. I could, I just can't imagine China not being on there. And I actually mm-hmm. think you may be right what you said last week, and I think it'll cause controversy. I think Fuzzy Nation could be on there too. And I think it's a, that's the sort of book where people are going to – you're going to hear the posts from from here to everywhere saying, is that really what the Hugo's is about, having Fuzzy Nation on there? Can't we do better than Fuzzy Nation? Blah, blah. But I have a funny feeling that will be on there. Can, can I say that well, – that's, by the way, just inter- can I interject at this point and say it's exactly what the Hugo's are about? Mm-hmm. You know, this notion that the Hugos are some measure of the 21st century science fiction field is somewhat flawed and imperceptive, if you think about it. Because, yes, it is, but the, the, the science fiction field is still full of people who started reading science fiction in the 50s and late 40s and the early 60s and everything no, else. No, it's not. Yes, it people, is. People yes, who started is. reading science fiction in the late 1940s are, by and large, dead. The old, oh, no, the oldest people in the world go to Worldcon. You know, 
It's all <laughs> scooters and Zimmer frames from here. You are. It is, that's true. That's. I mean, we don't. I, we didn't. I didn't experience that in Australia because we're such a young country. But uh, I, I've heard the stories yeah. in the US. That it's the true. World Conservation. Hey, not and old Fuzzy Nation is buffing up the Zimmer frame and making it look shiny and new, so that you can take it around the block one more time. You know, I mean, it's meant to be a very good book, but I do feel so. talking about an author with his own constituency. Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, he, not only has he got the Zimmer frame vote, but he's got a, a the whatever blog, you know, has a huge yes. following. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's got that too. I mean, I feel sorry in a sense because, you know, it, I, I probably won't read Fuzzy Nation but because uh, it's not really my sort of thing, but it's meant to be quite a fun, you know, oh, yeah. interesting Scarlet is a very entertaining writer to read. He really the, the fandom yeah. elites, the fandom elite as I call them, even though I love them, uh, will pick mm. on it. They will yeah. be. They'll be. I mean, you can just imagine the. I can already write the Adam Roberts post that will come out. You know, he probably won't do it this year now that I've said it. But you can just sort of imagine the sort of post that will say, "Really, this is this is it, Fuzzy Nation." No, but the, you're, the, no, it's your friend Jonathan Macklemore. Oh, Macca, yeah, Macca will do it too. He will come with it. Uh, he'll go after it with gun and camera. Um, <laughs> and you know, fair enough. Uh, it's it's. You know, it's not not what you'd call a cutting edge book, but it's not what John Scalzi would call a cutting edge book. I don't well, think he I mean, even pretended it was that. I mean, there 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 are there is. You're right. There's a historical sense in science fiction, which I appreciate. I I I enjoy Cory Doctorow rewriting versions of Asimov, for example. Uh huh. Um, and, and 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 that's meant to be respectful. It's not. These things are not parodies. You know, yeah. this is this is an appreciation of H. Beam Piper. Whether the world. Needed an appreciation of Piper is another question. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, well, since well, maybe we could do an appreciate, do a rewrite of Dish. But anyway, but it's it. it you're right. You're right, Gary. I, I'm not. We're not. I'm not saying that it's not a bad, a bad book or a good book. I just think it's. You know, people will say, "What about Adam Roberts's In Light Alone, which is meant to be getting some good uh, press?" Yes. You know, why doesn't that get the buzz? Why doesn't that get? Uh, you know, the votes on the Hugo. And it's because a writer like Adam Roberts, who is a good writer, is marginalised by the fact of what he writes. I think there's, yeah, mm-hmm. that, I think there's a whole bunch of things around it. I mean, I think the humorous stuff that he does semi-pseudonymously probably undercuts his position uh, in the field a little bit as, as a serious writer. And he's been prolific. I think the earlier books were somewhat, as is often the case with a writer who's finding their feet, a little bit derivative. I mean, it was true of Ian MacDonald when he was finding his feet in the field. And he's yeah. yet to produce the work that's changing every, will change everybody's mind. So even though he's produced some very strong books in the last few years, they haven't quite generated that buzz. So, you know, then this is what happens. I mean, uh, what we might do just quickly run through. I mean, you mentioned Susan Loyal. Some of the stuff that we've had recommended, Cheryl Morgan wrote to she, us. She, and she recommended she, Mechanique by Genevieve Valentine. Now, I've not read the book because I hate circus stories. But... <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great, but there um, are at least but there are read, three or four. I mean, uh, this has come up in our discussions about the Crawford Award. There are like three or four magic circus novels out yes, there. there. Are. A couple of <laughs> this is this is fire and Morgenstern and something else. Yeah. There, and, and but, is, is a mainstream uh, bestseller. But you would know, Ian. I mean, we've both read some very good short fiction by Valentine over the last year or two. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, she's a talented writer, absolutely, which sounds oh. patronising, but she is. And it is her first novel, so it's worth checking out. And I, I would not be surprised to see it fare very well in the first novel stakes in the Locust Awards next year, for yes, example. Yes, exactly. I would think so. Now, Soon Lee recommended The Quantum Thief by Hanu Ryan Yemi and Rule 34 by Charlie Strauss. Uh, 
which we talked about last week. Now, the Quantum Thief, yeah. our official Hugo um, interpreter, Cheryl Morgan, wrote in to report to us that the Quantum Thief is eligible for the Hugos next year. Given that it nearly made the ballot this year, it's desperately unlikely it will next year. But certainly it's deserve, been deserving of the buzz it's gotten, I think. And I'd be curious to know well, your response to it, Ian, when you guys do it on the writer and the critic. Yeah, but we'll do it well, yeah, probably not for another six or seven months. But I am curious to see what I feel about it. But uh, Rule 34 is an interesting one because, I don't know, has that got the buzz? No. It just feels like it's been missed. I read read a quarter of it or a third of it and was enjoying it but got distracted. It's an odd book because it's a near-future novel written in a second-person tense, which is an odd thing to write a book in. But some of it is actually, in fairness, now that I stop to think about it, very compelling. I'd be happy to go back and read it again. Um, but, you know, I wonder whether it's sort of – there's always a, ne- a downside to being prolific in our field. You know, I think yeah. it, it undercuts the amount of attention a single book gets. And it's a, a really very difficult balance for a writer to strike. I mean, because the, the, the business in the field wants a book a year out of you. You do more than a book a year and people look and go, that's a lot of books. It's like – one of your, your your good friend, Kat Valenti, right, seems to have yeah. had a book out about every 17 minutes this year. Yeah, well, she she's had quite a bit out. Uh, you know, the, the fairy tale, Habitation of the Blessed, the second book. And Deathless Witch, Deathless should be on World Fantasy. Yeah. And and if mm-hmm. I had my druthers, it'd be on the Hugo nominee, but it won't make it. I don't think it will. But Deathless is a beautiful novel. And uh, that's the sort of uh, book that deserves to be. Uh, but again, yeah, it's, it's more a World Fantasy book than a Hugo book. Yeah. I bought and it on your recommendation. Shirley Jackson book. I bought it on your recommendation, so I have it sort of sitting in my in my, on my bedside table. And it's short, it's short, Jonathan. It's I love a good short book. But there's another thing going working against it now. Actually, it's now it's an old book. You see. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's lost its shine. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's like it it's it, it's sort of September now, so we're actually reading January, and you want me to read something from the beginning of the year? I, I just want to quickly just jump in one thing. I want to say, Gary, what's the chances mm-hmm. of Adam Levin's The Instructions appearing on the Hugo nominee ballot? I wouldn't think very <laughs> I, I just that's another David Foster Wallace uh, book. Yeah, that's okay. uh, that's um, the because the instru- it is science fiction, um, but it's about 50,000 pages long, and it came out from McSweeney's, and uh, that had a lot of buzz, but in the McSweeney's world, not in the SF <laughs> world. I mean, yeah, I have it. Once in a while, something like that. I, I did, I'm trying to remember. Pensions Against the Day never got a nomination, did it? I don't no. think so. No, no. I, no, no. I don't think I don't so, know. and... But yet, but yet, Charles Hughes, How to Live in a Science Fictional Universe, which was one of those crossover novels, did uh, yeah, get a accessible. lot of buzz. It's accessible. And if you get the Kindle version on iPad, you get little videos. So, Ooh. you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a more accessible book than okay. the instructions, I, I, which I will in the This is by way of nudging him if he ever listens to this, which, which he doesn't unless I email it to him. My prediction is that if you talk about a mainstream writer with a mainstream reputation who could get on the Hugo Ballot, uh, the way Michael Chabon did. The next person, if he writes his science fiction epic, would be Juno Diaz. Okay. Yes. I think you're right. Science. Inside yes. now, he wants to write the definitive uh, Dominican space opera. And if he does that, given the buzz, which is uh, uh, some buzz I appreciate, the buzz that uh, Karen Lord generated, mm-hmm. uh, the buzz that uh, Nettie Okorafor generated, the buzz of people who you know, writing different kinds of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and I think, yeah, Juno Diaz would get a lot of attention that way because uh, the, the the one area that we have not seen as much activity as we have in even in African American science fiction has been um, you know, Hispanic, well, Caribbean. You get certainly you have Nalo Hopkinson and that sort of thing. But every once in a while, you think the timing is wrong for a writer. There's a Chicano writer in the United States named Ernest Hogan 
wrote a yep. book called High Aztec. And Ernest Hogan is really a very skilled writer. Yep. But at the time he was writing his first novels, there wasn't any mechanism to ge- generate buzz about uh, yeah. Latin, you know, Hispano-American science fiction. Uh, and, and he didn't get as much buzz as he deserved. Nettie Okorafor is an interesting case. Um, she's uh, She had a good reputation for her first two YA novels and then a huge amount of buzz for Who Fears Death. And you which couldn't get on the Hugo ballot, Gary. It missed I out know. on votes or whatever. I, I wondered about that. It was probably Gary's uh, fault. He's, he, he's notorious <laughs> for not nominating things by one vote and they don't get on the ballot. And the funny thing is I hadn't read it before I voted, so if I had it, I wouldn't <gasps> vote. It's your fault then. Oh, it's fault there as you well. go. It's your fault. Sorry, Nettie. <laughs> I nominated uh, it. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> so Nettie goes back okay Nettie goes back to her more uh, the niche that people had previously associated her with with young adult fiction with a Carter witch which is not a science fiction novel but you know who fears death it has fantasy and sense a Carter witch didn't get the buzz that who fears death did uh, possibly maybe because it was back in the YA category but then see but sometimes buzz misses it because think about this shipbreaker by Paolo Bacigalupi did not get the buzz that the wind-up girl did but it did That's really it. well in the end yeah. Yeah. True. Well, and it may be that the buzz—it may be that the buzz from Who Fears Death will carry a Carter wedge. It's, it's quite possible. In fact, quite likely it will. I and would, will the buzz of feed carry Deadline? Because that—that was a suggestion of one of the. Yeah, I don't think. Well, I see. It's hard for me to know. I couldn't read like, Mira Grant's book. I, I'm not interested in the topic. I tried to read it. I found it unreadable. So I'm the wrong person to do it. I look at. It, I'm going. I can't imagine it making the ballot. But truthfully, I couldn't have imagined if you'd placed bets with me last year about feed making it, I would have gone, no. So it just goes to show you what I know. I mean, when you've got a blind spot, you've got a blind spot, and that's in my blind yeah. spot. Well, one of the well, one of the other names that uh, that uh, our friend Susan recommended was uh, Elizabeth Bear. And yeah. I, to be honest, did not start on that Generation Starship trilogy that now ends with Grail. I probably should have. I, I did miss it. I don't... There are some well, stories... I, I read the first was, book. I read the first book, and I liked it, but I didn't love it. Okay. Well, that's yeah. the sense I had, and some of the stories that, uh, some of the stories she'd written, some of the ones I think with Sarah Monette, is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. But one of the questions that also comes up when you're looking at Hugo Awards is you've got the third volume of a trilogy. Yeah. Uh, and I think this comes up with any award discussion. Uh, do you wait for the third volume and say, is the whole trilogy really that good? I mean, this is, think, think of the number of writers that this affects. I mean, this certainly affected... Um, uh, Daniel Abraham. It's probably affected David Durham. Uh, people who you yes. don't know exactly where the buzz is supposed to be. Volume. It's almost I, the only thing I know for certain is it's never in volume two. Yeah. By the way, that's Anthony Durham, but uh, isn't it? Anthony Durham. Yeah, yeah it is. But and and didn't he write just recently that he's getting tra- he's having trouble selling his third book into the into the UK? I, uh, I don't know. If he it's, might have. It, it's out of. Because no, no. Well, he did. Well, actually, I'm I'm pretty sure he did. The first book got a lot of buzz, but that yeah. buzz has waned off. It has. As, as time yeah. has gone on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that we're, we're, we're saying that dances with Dra- the Dance with Dragons will make the Hugo ballot next year. Because it's vastly popular, but it's unreadable to anybody who hasn't read the first four books. Yeah, but the people who have are about a gazillion people, and, and they will. <laughs> well, and, and, and you only need a small percentage of them to, to vote yeah. it in, you know? This True. is the issue I talk about when I say there's a constituency for certain books. I mean, there, there's certainly a scholarly constituency. The China, you mentioned, uh, Ian, that. You can't imagine China not being on the ballot. There are people who will vote for anything by China. There, yeah. If Neil Gaiman writes anything that could remotely be on the Hugo ballot, it will be. <laughs> yeah. 
True. Yeah, and and, 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 and interesting. Well, actually, no, said, no, that's not true because what? Neil had an original story out the, this year, and there's no buzz for it yet, none at all. You mean the one in the stories? No, that's last. Yeah, that year. was last year. It's last year. You're right. And probably, I mean, and Ian, we it was discussed on last short story. Yeah. What was? Which was the? What's the it's game? A, and I can't. It's, it, it's the one from that British anthology of bar stories. Oh yeah, but yeah, okay. Oh yeah, you're right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, you've completely forgotten it. No yes, buzz, no talk. I, have. I mean, so sometimes the buzz machine isn't automatic. And I think actually someone like Neil would be relieved the buzz machine isn't automatic because he wants to get there based on merit, not based on buzz, you know. Uh, I think that's true. I think it does. And, and he's written uh, one really good science fiction short story. Did, did uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties yes. make the ballot? It did, no. okay. Did it? I don't did think it? it did. No, I don't think it did. Anyway, we should go back to our commentators. Sirtak yeah. re- recommended The Heroes by Abercrombie and Down to the Bone by Justin Justin Robson. I actually wonder if The Heroes might be a world fantasy contender for next year. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if I'd read an Abercrombie, I could comment, but I haven't. <laughs> I, I read <laughs> the first couple of them. Read, uh, Abercrombie is somebody I admire. Ab- Abercrombie has got uh, it, it's it's difficult when you're doing that noir kind of thing to get the noir part of it right. Yeah. You know, you really want to get a sense that this person may have read Raymond Chandler at some point, and I get that sense from Abercrombie. It's 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 a it's a knowing style that he writes, and even though I haven't read that novel, I think that sooner or later he's building up to that to that kind of recognition. And Justina as Robson, as well as the, she's she she's been around for some time. She's uh, been around, for time, but again, this is the last novel in a series, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a closing out to the Quantum Gravity series, the first couple of which were very entertaining, but mm. were all seen as comparatively lightweight compared to Natural History, which was uh, mm. did make the ballots. And it may be the Hugos do have a, or in fact, generally awards generally do t- tend to have a prejudice against uh, lighthearted, humorous, adventurous kind of works to some degree. So that might mm. undercut. I, I think that the Abercrombie's a chance. I, I think the Robson's a much longer shot to end up on, on major awards ballots this coming year, I think. But you, but Jonathan, you were saying last week that you were uncomfortable that you hadn't been discussing many women to appear yes. except for Joe Walton. And, uh, I mean, and other than uh, Genevieve Valentine, really, we're struggling, aren't we, to come up with something? And not wow. out of some sort of gender bias issue, but because we're struggling. I'll well, defend ourselves a little bit. Just very briefly, because one of the one of the names that was mentioned in uh, in, in, in uh, Susan Royal's note was Stina Light, uh, yeah. who was of, of Blood and Honey. And now we talked about Stina in the context of talking, as I recall, about uh, Nightshade's promoting first novelists, yeah. yes. discovering writers, and she was one of the most prominent ones uh, that they've discovered this year. Whether it's a Hugo nominee. Uh, it's a very good fantasy. It's a very it's a fantasy that has it's a fantasy that has its historical detail convincingly right, I believe. Yeah. Not knowing what the troubles in Northern Ireland were. Sure. Like. I will but, say, I mean, if we're going to talk about books by women specifically, uh, Kathleen Ann Gurnan's novel would be one that comes to mind. Uh, that just came out uh, this something Earth, whatever it was, Gary, the one that you read. Yeah, but uh, I think Gary Gary kiboshed that last week by saying, you know, Kathleen, she's not been around. True. She sort of hasn't done herself any favours by not producing a book once every year or whatever it is, and so because I mean I probably won't read it because I haven't read it in War Times and uh, you can't even get her backlist. You can get in War Times. I think that's in print, but uh, but the previous yeah. the nanotechnology yeah. trilogy whatever doesn't exist. It, uh, it well, exists on second hand, but not in print. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's rather stunning because there was 
there, there were a few books, Paul McCauley's Fairyland, and that's another one that comes to mind, that really were doing what I consider literary things with, with nanotech. And, and I thought Kathy's trilogy, which probably shouldn't have gone on to the fourth volume, was one of the best examples of that. But I, I think uh, Kathy Goonan may be an example if there's still some kind of a sexual bias among science fiction readers, yeah. because she writes sophisticated science fiction, and it doesn't get the audience it needs. It's also it's also very passionate, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't know why she's not gotten the recognition I think she should have. Yeah. Um, then there's obviously, obviously we're talking about the High Frontier, the John Slonczewski novel, or the Harry Potter hard SF book you mentioned. Um, uh, <laughs> the reason I say Harry Potter, let me, let me defend myself because this is the first of a series of uh, novels uh, that deal, as far as I can tell, the plan is to have. Uh, the young protagonist returned for her sophomore year. There's also a, a, a sport involving a ball in midair, which you control by magical means, uh, although it's psychic means, which is why it's called slam ball. In other words, there are a lot of things that look like this might become a hard SF version of Harry Potter, which is not necessarily a bad thing. No. I mean, no. one of the things that's been bothering me for the last, not bothering me, but it's an observation, which I will throw out for you to puncture, is that the, the school... <laughs> The education novel, the novel, it's, it's, it's a standard format from Brideshead Revisited to the separate piece and so forth and so on, has been abducted in our field by fantasy. I mean, yeah. after, well, not, not only after J.K. Rowling, because I should, we should all remember that uh, Jane Rowling wrote a, a, a school for wizards novel long before uh, uh, Rowling came along. <clears throat> but now, now fantasy seems to have possessed the uh, the school novel and remember we used to read novels like Space Cadets. There sure. was science fiction. The school novel was a standard template for science fiction for a while. And I, whether I, no matter what happens with the trilogy, I will celebrate Jones Lanzuski for trying to reclaim the school novel for <laughs> science fiction away from fantasy. But unlikely to fe feature on the Hugo ballot though. Yeah, I, I will say I, you know sort of just as an aside in. in when it comes to sort of looking for the best books of the year by w women, um, I would want to spend a little bit more time looking at it seriously. And I'd also say that right off the top of my head, three of the best collections of the year are by women. Easily. Because yes, we've, got the, we've got, the, got the best of Lucy Sussex, the best of Caitlin Kiernan, and you have um, the Universe of Things, the Gwyneth Jones collection that's come out from um, Aqueduct Press. So, you know, women are holding their own. The last... Yes. Oh, let me think. Wait a second. Um, okay, the second M. Rickard collection was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, Holiday, yeah. So there won't be another okay, one for some years. Yeah, it'll be a while. The, the collection isn't a Hugo category, category. Is No, it's it? a world fantasy category. Yeah, because uh, uh, we'll be reviewing um, Writer and the Critic at uh, Rob Shearman's new book and also Lisa Hannett's book, and uh, both of those, uh, well, the Lisa, Lisa Hannett I'm halfway through, and that's been very good so far and i read rob's nine months ago and fell in love mm. with it in fact he got a very good review in the scotsman uh yesterday which compared him to china mavel of all people which i found thought no didn't compare really? him said he's he's a great writer like china mavel yeah rob okay. schumann i mean they completely write different things there's Do you no, remember no, no connection at all in terms of uh content but uh it was interesting but anyway yeah th those are those are two uh Authors I can see popping up on a world fantasy. Maybe not Lisa, I don't know. But Rob's already won it, so maybe that... I don't know if that uh, prejudices him. Rob's already <laughs> Give it to someone else, but uh, yeah. yeah. Never I, I must say, it, 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 
it does annoy me that the collection uh, has, as I don't believe it's ever been a Hugo category. No, it's never, 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 never. And yet, and, and that there are any number of writers who, uh, over the last 50 years, probably should have won Hugo collections. Uh, and, well, yeah. if you go back before the Hugos, even, iRobot is, you know, a, it's, it's a collection, is essentially yeah. a collection. But I believe uh, the, the argument the, against it is the double jeopardy argument, uh, Gary, where they, or not double jeopardy, whatever you want to call it, where they don't want the same work eligible more than once. So the short stories are all eligible individually. And that's why they don't want them to be eligible as, as you know, a combined thing. I'm not sure that I'm convinced by this argument, but I think that's the argument they they mount. Well, let's uh, let's give a good example of how this works against a specific woman writer. Did Zena Henderson ever win a Hugo Award for the People stories? I doubt that she did. In fact, I I, I think she would look it up, Gary. Wasn't most the Hugos barely overlapped her career, didn't they? Oh no, she started writing the stories in the early '50s when the Hugos started, and I think the yeah. book Pilgrimage must have come out in his. Early 60s, probably late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Should I love it when you two get historical. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I've got to say, do you know who, who I think deserves a Hugo Award? And hmm. I'm really Wait. serious. Here's who deserves a, a Hugo Award. Mark R. Kelly deserves a Hugo Award. And you know what he deserves, deserves a Hugo Award for? for His what? Index to Science Fiction Awards. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well Joe Walton said she couldn't have lived without it. It is one of the best resources in the field. It really is. And the oh, fact yeah. that, that he did it entirely independently off his own bat and keeps it up to date and everything else makes it an invaluable resource. I look at it all the time. I look at it during these podcasts to make myself look more informed yeah, I know. than I am. Now that I have an iPad, I can also tap on the screen without people hearing the clicking in the background to know I'm looking something <laughs> yes. up. And that's how I can tell you that Zen Henderson was indeed nominated for the Hugo Hugo Award for Best Novelette for her story, Captivity, in 1958. There you go. Okay, 1958, that's five years after the Hugo Awards began. So, so Zena Henderson, who is, again, one of the overlooked women in science fiction, um, that you know, basically, there's no buzz about her anymore. I mean, I, 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 I promote the buzz about Joanna Russ all I can. You know, uh, if Joe, if Judith Merrill had written a little bit better fiction than she did, I'd be glad to set up some buzz for her. Uh, her novels weren't that great, but Zena <laughs> Henderson is doing something really original. Um, and oh boy, we shall rot okay. now. I'm gonna rot. But see, I rely on, and this is gonna sound cruel but i rely on aqueduct press to inform me of these people because i i had not heard of zena henderson and uh up until right this second so oh, well, she's terrific no, i mean she really is my wife and and I, and aqueduct uh, timmy if you're listening aqueduct should start looking at zena henderson why all the, all the short stories were are in print are they they are yes oh, really of course they are nesfa press put out a collection in 1995 That's right Called That's In right, Gathering, right. the complete people stories of Zena Henderson, yeah. and for twenty five or thirty bucks, you can get a wonderful big hardcover that brings them all together in an authoritative edition. And um, this is the the joy of Nesfa. I mean, it hats off to them when they get it right. Um, and the Zena Henderson was an example of them getting it right. So, um, it's there. The, the work and the, it, it, you know, because they never let the books go out of print, it means now that. Zena Henderson is there for people to okay, discover. Okay, well, I recommend her strongly. She's great. Okay. I, 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 do, no, thanks, I, I do too. I think she's terrific, and I think there are other writers in that period, Margaret Sinclair, Catherine McLean, and so forth, that, that need to be discovered. I'm not sure that Nesfa Press reprinting something creates buzz. It, no. it creates Nesfa Press is like an official uh, uh, classics library for people who know the field well. 
but by and large, I'm not sure the Nestle volumes get beyond the likes of us. You've also got to have a really decent bank account to get the Nestle stuff. Well, they're not cheap either, yeah. Yeah, and they they are heavy, and I ran out of bookshelf space, and you guys, of course, can appreciate this, many years ago. So, you know, I I wish Nestle would move to an e-book sort of thing, because I'd probably buy nearly everything if I could. I'm glad you're saying that, Ian, because I'm just thinking, if I could get... If, if I could get a huge ebook library, I could open up space here. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm actually buying a lot of books I already own in hardcover as ebooks, just so I can get rid of them. I didn't say yeah. that, but no, yes, I did no, say no, no, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 well, the problem is, of course, that none of the Nesra books are available electronically. But then I suspect mm. that's far too modern for Nesra. You know, sort of. I, I think they're, you know, that that's not their deal. Every time I go to Worldcon and I see them, they all look older. Oh, they got zipper frames. They're the same people. They're nice, but they're old. Here, here is one of the dilemmas created by the ebook phenomenon because Nesva Press creates books for collectors. Subterranean likes to make books for collectors. Uh, Tartarus likes to make books for collectors, and those are objects. Collectors want physical objects. No, I've, I've, I've yet to see anybody boast about his wonderful collection of ebooks. Let me show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the guy's iPad. I actually do. No, that's wrong, Gary. At work, I do. I open up my iPad and I show people my Kindle and I flick through and I say, "Look at this! Look how cute it is!" <laughs> <laughs> see, see, I have to say that sort of, you know, showing someone your ebook collection sounds like something that you pull out of your trench coat. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But you're well, right. There's a place for collectors' books. Um, I'm, all I'm saying yeah. is that Nesfa aren't oh, killing I, I, themselves I, 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 having an ebook yeah. thing for people who just want to read it, who don't okay. need I think the they physical object. Right. I would encourage them to. Uh, I would say that, I mean, on one hand, you're right as well, seriously. Nesfa publishing something does not create buzz. What that does do, though, is it does create the opportunity for anybody like us uh, to create buzz and have there be something that exists that's readily accessible. Right. Because you can go onto, um, I don't know, onto Amazon.com and pick up a copy of In Gathering the Complete People Stories for $18 or something and mm. have it at your house. And yes, it's a kilo of book and everything else. But And maybe it would be better if it was an ebook in many ways. But on the other hand, you know, it's there. It, it exists. It's in print. It's accessible. No, it's a fair here's, point. Here, here's the problem with that. And I, I go back to Ian's mentioning uh, not knowing about Zen Henderson because. Do you really want to buy a, 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 a three-pound book in order to see if you're interested in a writer? You want to get something online to, to sample. You want to get a sense of what this writer is like, and then you might buy a physical book. Well, you know, maybe. Let, let, let's see what Goldlands do. I mean, yeah, this, this kind of way, way, yeah. Goldlands thing will be a good test, absolutely. The, Actually, the those books are all – if you go onto your Kindle now, you'll see that a good chunk of them are already there for pre-order. Yeah. So yeah. The, the only problem I've got is that they're these awful, the old yellow color, I know. colors have gone back to that. I wish they'd, you know, maybe they're being, I mean, they probably can't spend money on decent covers, but uh, they just look a bit manky. Well, there's two, two reasons to that for that. I mean, you will have talked to someone like Sean Williams, our dear friend, mm-hmm. yes. who actually is deeply nostalgic for the yellow cover, loves the yellow cover, and thinks it's the best, best thing in the world. But I did spend some time talking to Malcolm Edwards, who's the head of Goliaths, uh, oh. when I was in Reno, and we talked about the SF Gateway. And the, honestly, one of the big reasons they're going with the standard yellow cover is they're doing 1,200 books in six yeah. months or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, it's not practical to have individual covers. I, I can understand that. Yeah. And just, yeah. It's just a little part of me. It's also kind of a British tradition. I mean, Golanx was doing the yellow covers way back with their masterworks of fantasy. Well, they were reprinting 
David Lindsay and the E.S. Vizzi. I mean, the, the yellow covers are a, an old, old tradition with mm. Golongs. The standardized cover, before Golongs even, the standardized, if you see these books in a row, you know what they are, started probably with the Everyman's Library. And there's 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 an appeal to having a book that has... The, the book doesn't say anything about the book itself, but it says something about the historical importance of the book and the context of the book. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of like yellow covers for that reason myself. And just to point out, John Brunner is there already, but not um, the cool stuff. <laughs> like Shockwave <laughs> Rider. Yeah. It well, looks like it's all the old Ace Doubles and that that are there, which I great. I'm glad they're in print. But uh, uh, I assume it's because the other stuff's already in print that Golands didn't reprint. Well, well they are. It's like when I was – I was well, it's interesting you should say that, Ian. Because, oh, because when I was sitting in the departure lounge in Los Angeles to come home from uh, Worldcon this year, I bought the ebook of the tour edition of Stand on Zanzibar to read on the plane. Oh. Mm-hmm. And they've done a lovely reprint of it just now, in the last really? last month or two. Oh, okay. You mean the tour book? Yeah. I thought tour really? don't do ebooks, because I can never see... Of course they I, do. That's not, okay, all right. Oh, Maybe hang on. It's Yes, yeah, no, I know. It's because I live in Australia, unlike yeah. Jonathan, who sort of lives in Australia. <laughs> Let me put it this way. <laughs> I live in Australia, but my Kindle lives in Oakland. Fucking <laughs> oh, <laughs> bastard. For tax okay. purposes, you know. Yeah, for tax, but yeah, okay. Well, anyway, so does that mean that that it won't come out as the Golands book because you can get it, or it's already obviously yeah, a tour book? I would yeah, say okay. so, yeah. Yeah, understood. Okay. And also it's the stuff they've got to get to. I mean, there's... Uh, the, the way I, I the impression I got talking to Malcolm was they are running as fast as they can and they're going to be putting them out in waves and you may fi- see that things will come mm. out when you don't expect them to or will come out a little bit later um, just depending on what they can do you know so but yeah. it's, it's a great thing it's gonna make life a lot easier certainly I'm supposed to be working on a Keith Roberts project and I'm gonna go off and buy all of their Keith Roberts collections immediately so I'm quite happy anyway with your with your Oakland Kindle or with your Australian Kindle okay actually i will say just to really veer off the, the to veer off the subject <laughs> here's the thing the thing that will continues to annoy me about ebooks and i am sold on ebooks so it's not about ebooks it's about the ebook environment this whole conversation that we have to be worried about our english kindles and our American Kindles and whether you can see a copy of Stand on Zanzibar to buy for your ebook enough. This is all nonsense that has to go away. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. And in fact, Kindle's gotten better uh, in that you can now basically get 85%. It's very rare now that I do come across something that I can't get, but they're still like Tor under Macmillan. You can't, mm. you still can't get the ebooks. So yeah. uh, that's a pain in the ass because I'd love to buy lots yeah. of Tor books on ebooks. On my Kindle. Well, yeah, and and, and one of the things I've discovered um, in simply starting to play with my new iPad, which is still <laughs> new, is that you can get you can get whole issues of pulp magazines for free. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. That, that's just phenomenal uh, in terms of. I mean, I, I downloaded an ebook uh, program called Stanza. Yeah. Which is. Yes. Uh, which is owned by life. Amazon. Hmm. Which is owned by Amazon. I did not know that. Yeah, you're, 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 I love it when you said stanza. It sounded like stanza. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's this alien concept, stanza. Stop, stop blowing in, in plain you, you, you see a you see a website like that, and you assume you're going to get music. Um, <laughs> no, you get you, you get astounding from 1930 and so forth and so on. The only problem with that is, and this is this is the old fart in me coming out. I realized, and I remember 
I, I can go back to having conversations with Sam Moskowitz in which he convinced me that you should never read anything you can't smell. Uh, if it's not old enough that the acids coming off the page are pungent, then you're not reading the real thing. And, and, and there's something to that because I, so I was reading uh, September 1930 Astounding on Stanza, and it's, it's a text file. It's not a, re- it's, it's not a PDF and so forth. And I'm thinking, when I was a kid, you could buy pulp magazines fairly cheap. And there's something about all those trust ads and all those magic, you know, 101 magic tricks for 59 cents or something like that, that creates the context of those things. If you read Lovecraft in the midst of bodybuilding ads, it's different. Yeah. Well, look, I I shouldn't mention this because I might get put to jail, but on some torrent sites, which I shall not mention, there are old Zimmer frame types who somehow know how to use the computer who are scanning all their old magazines and putting Mm. them as uh, scans on uh, on the torrents that you can download so that you do get the experience of reading them, especially on an iPad. It's as if you're reading the Uh magazine. Yeah. But uh, yes, but we shan't speak you, much more of that. You, you, you're not getting that decaying wood pulp smell. No, you're not getting that. Although I'm pretty sure you can let, you can put that on your iPad. You can wash your iPad. I'm sure and you can. Stuff I'm, and get I'm the sure iPad you smell want is coming next week. This podcast is getting worse yeah. and worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because of me. It was already there. It really was. On that cheery note, gentlemen, in what is <laughs> obviously because Ian's come to visit the longest Cood Street we've recorded in quite some time. I think we might wind up. You're blaming me. I've decided to. Okay. Ian, I've checked out your podcast. They run an hour and a half at least. Yeah, they do. But, you know, so what? This one's, what, an hour and 20 at least? Yeah, but we always come in on an hour now, normally. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Jonathan, you're telling us we're rambling. We are. Well, we've been rambling, I think, since about 30 seconds after we said hello. But but that's okay. I think hopefully everybody will... We'll, we'll forgive us, and I'll put in a few... You know what? The problem is I'm supposed to do these show notes afterwards every time I'm supposed to, and I'm going, what the hell did we talk about? Um, so I'll just say we rambled about buzz and stuff and how you should be reading Michael Bishop, and hopefully everybody will, will check in. And, and Tom Dish. And hopefully Elisa won't hate me for mentioning her halfway through the podcast, and everything will be okay. And for me, it's babble, not ramble. I don't want to be joined with you. I like your babble ramble. is better than rambling. No, no, you ramble, I babble. I want that to be clear. Okay, that's good. Okay. 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 Well, can, well, we have a babble franchise in your podcast, and we'll do ramble. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you for babbling with us, Ian. It's been a pleasure, pleasure. to have you. It's been fantastic. And good to talk to you as always, Gary. Okay, we'll see, same See you too. next week. Okay, bye. See you next week. Bye.